Well, good day and welcome to uh, From the Archives season of the Reformers Bookcast. My name is Tom Eglinton, the manager here at Reformers Bookshop. This season is uh, an intermittent season between um, seasons three and seasons four. We go back and uh, pull some of the interviews that we did over the last few years and uh, have put them together for you in this uh, podcast. This one, the first one, is with Mark Jones. Mark Jones is the author of Knowing Christ and God Is and a few other books as well. And uh, we sat down with Mark Powell from the Presbyterian Church of New South Wales uh, and Mark Jones, and we discussed the Puritans, um, we discussed the attributes of God, the person of Christ, and a few other things as well. We hope you enjoy. G'day, Tom here from Reformers Bookshop with another Reformers interview. Today we have... Mark Jones from Faith Vancouver um, Presbyterian Church in Canada. Welcome, yeah, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having um, me. Mark's the author of, of several books, um, two that we will talk about today, uh, God Is, which is a devotional that goes through God's attributes, and Knowing Christ, which is a, a wonderful book that talks about um, how we can know God through the person of Christ. Um, we also have with us Mark Powell from Australian Presbyterian. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. Um, So, Mark, I thought we might start by talking about these two books in particular. They came came out around the same time. It feels like they might have been written together. Yeah, kind of. I think, I don't know, maybe two years, maybe. There was Faith, Hope, and Love came out a few months before or after God is. I don't remember. But, yeah, they're, I mean, they're within the same uh, period. In world history, at least. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the topics themselves are, are quite interesting. Um, as, a, as a bookshop, it's not a, the attributes of God is not a topic that's written on prolifically. Yeah. Why, why did you choose these mm. topics? Well, I'll start with, I mean, I can start with the attributes of God. That one was, uh, to me, uh, one of the things I've noticed as a pastor, at least preaching, is is how much the attributes of God, once I studied them, comforted me as a Christian. So just in terms of God's knowledge or his wisdom and his power or his goodness and and not just surface level understandings, but as I dove deeper into especially Puritan thinkers and reformed thinkers on the continent, I just thought, wow, you know, this is really enriching my life as a devotional uh, Christian who wants to commune with the triune God understanding his attributes to me was like, wow. And then um, what I'd noticed, though, on books on the attributes of God is they're kind of dry. You just thought, okay, well, here's immutability, impassibility, etc., and this is the doctrine, and here it is. And it was kind of left like, okay, well, uh, how does this connect to my life? And one thing I wanted to try and bridge together was, A, Christology, how does the attribute relate to Christ, each specific attribute, and then how does this then relate to my Christian life? So every chapter structured the attribute, relation to Christ, and then how does this practically apply to my life? And you see the Puritans are very good at the attributes and how does this relate to our life? And what I'm trying to do is kind of weave in a little more Christology and make it accessible to the modern reader. So that was, that was my goal. Mm-hmm. And 
It's interesting how you talk about the, the application to the Christian life because I was reading to Mark earlier in the introduction to God is, mm. you talk about how um, the knowing God is actually the solution to all of our problems yeah. in, in many respects. So is, can you flesh that out a little bit more? Yeah, I think that for me was at least part of my own conversion of 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 being in a, a, a bad state, a low state, a depressed state, whatever you want to call it, and, and wondering, you know, how can, how can my life be turned around? How can there be any meaning? How can there be value to things that are happening to me that I don't really enjoy? And learning about God's sovereignty, but not just the fact that he orders all things, because he can order all things and still be a tyrannical despot, you know? So learning that he's a good God ordering all things and that he's a wise God ordering all things so that I know what's happening is good, but also his wisdom is infinitely beyond my understanding that I have to trust what he's doing is good. So as the years go on and you start to see how his providence unfolds in your life and how he has orchestrated it far better than we could ever imagine, you, you start to see the value of the, the attributes and and just why... Uh, as Christians, I think we rob ourselves of a lot of comfort by not studying the attributes of God. Mm. In your book, you refer a lot to the Puritans. In fact, yeah. I'm quite in awe of how much you have read of them. What do you think modern Christians miss by not reading the Puritans? Well, there's probably uh, two sides to that uh, question, which is a great question in terms of what do we miss? The, the, the one side is that the Puritans aren't exactly accessible. Even in the modern reprints, the, the print is small, the books are big, mm -hmm. uh, the, the headings aren't always there to guide us. Mm -hmm. uh, it's daunting, and the language is a little archaic, so you, you, you have to sort of sympathize with um, some people who just go, you know, this is not for me, this is for the mm -hmm. pastor in his study. Uh, but on the other hand is that there, the, the, if you attack certain Puritans, and read their stuff, Thomas Watts and John Flavel, even a little bit of Thomas Goodwin to get going. And before you get to John Owen, mm. which is a lot of people go, okay, well, he's the Puritan who's the mm. well, most well-known. I'll read him, and then they're blown away. I <laughs> so uh, for me, it's a case of uh, reading the Puritans is a lot of work. It's sort of like running mm. up a, a steep hill. Mm. And... You, you do want to die at times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you know, you feel like you can't make it. Mm -hmm. But then there comes this point where everything starts to make more sense, to click. You, you start to forget the language and mm -hmm. uh, you start to understand why these guys were the men that they, they were and are, are today. And, and then it becomes a little easier. So you start to go downhill and, and faster and you, you just start to think and breathe and understand how they... They thought about God and Christ and the church and all those things. I noticed you had quite a few references to Bavink. Mm -hmm. um, would you say he's a favorite? Yeah, Bavink is uh, sort of you know one of those um, great systematizers of the truth who along, he was a contemporary of Warfield, mm -hmm. so you kind of have these great minds on either side of the continent at the same time, and you, you know whichever one you read, you just think, wow, the learning of this man is... Is is incredible. I mean, it's you, some of the Puritans were incredibly learned. Uh, Richard Baxter and John Owen kind of peer above, I think, everyone else in terms of their learning. But then you get Baxter, and you think, uh, sorry, Bavink, and you think, wow, this this man has read 
a lot. And so what he does so wonderfully is he takes a lot of contemporary theology, contemporary by our standards mm. of the last you know, couple hundred years, whereas the Puritans didn't have access to what it developed after mm. that. So Bavinck mm. is sort of my guy to, to encapsulate um, 19th century theology, 18th mm. century. So Bavinck's very good at not just the Bible, but looking at the world of his day. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the contemporary issues that we're going to face in the next um, 20 years? And perhaps to add to mm. that, how would you attack those issues? How would you, mm. um, particularly in light of yeah. what you've written about? Yeah. Well, the the thing with uh, Bavinck, um, you know, addressing those issues is, and the Puritans addressing the issues they did, and and even before that Reformation and and today is, you start to see sort of common threads, and almost as though uh, some of these issues are kind of the same in mm. a sense. Okay. And so the Socinian issue that Owen dealt with at length in his work isn't altogether different from a lot of the issues today where people are, are, are sort of denying God's attributes. They're denying that he um, is active in this world. There's a type of deism that creeps in or even questioning the Bible. Uh, that's mm-hmm. not an, a new uh, heresy. So today I, I kind of see, you know, the major, major issue is, has God really said? Mm-hmm. But, you know, that goes right back to the garden when, mm, when yeah. Satan, mm, and that's yeah. just a, an issue of sin is, are we really, do we really want to listen to God? And however we wrap it up in whatever postmodern or post-enlightenment uh, mm. thought and clever language, the, the ultimate issue I think as a pastor and, yep. uh, and, and hopefully some degree of a theologian is, is, did God say this? Yes, it is actually not that difficult. Um, mm. And I think t- we're gonna have to just be faced with not just saying, has God really said, but then saying, has the church really confessed the truth for 2,000 years mm-hmm. generally? So are we taking on a view that runs counter to the entire Western Christendom? Mm. Uh, and people are doing that without even blinking as though that's not a big deal. And I think it, you know, if, if the church has for 2,000 years stood firm on certain issues, who are we to all of a sudden think we have a new insight? Mm. So do you think studying the Puritans helps with that? Because I, as, a, as a bookshop manager, it's always the new books that sell, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so do you think there's, that's part of the problem, is that we're always reading the new stuff mm. yeah. and haven't got an, a view of what came before? Yeah, probably. Uh, I think it's a surface-level understanding of the Puritans or the Reformers. I mean, it's called the Reformers Bookstore. And if you read the Reformers and the Puritans, you see these people were incredibly learned. They were dealing with pagan authors they were dealing with authors outside of their tradition they had training in various languages they knew cultures they were very learned and so you you understand that these aren't people just writing in their little office with a a, a few books around them and a bible these are men who were working at the very height of academia in universities oxford cambridge they're on cutting edge of scholarship of languages Um, and so reading them, you get the sense that these guys aren't just having a laugh. They're they're Mm. men who have really Mm. thought these issues through. So today, um, I think the one probably big difference is what we have is the high academic stuff, guys on the cutting edge, and we've got a lot of pastoral new stuff that's fluffy, and the bridge that the Puritans were able to do by bringing together great learning but also pastoral theology has completely been separated today. So 
it's weird to read a book where you feel like it's devotional, but the learning is just couched throughout it. So that's been my um, observation in terms of my own writing and what I've read. Is, so your goal is what you might call experiential theology. Yeah, experiential theology. But I want people to, you know, reading Knowing Christ, I want them to realize that you, you can't, I couldn't write Knowing Christ without actually um, having done a decade of study in Christology. So that, you know, I did a PhD on Thomas Goodwin's Christology and read mm-hmm. Christology throughout that that era. And so writing Knowing Christ was was only possible as a result of the type of reading and research that had taken place. Mm-hmm. Whereas to just forget all of that learning that had to be done in the hard way and just say, oh, I'm going to write a devotional book on Christ. Mm. It, it just couldn't happen, I don't think, mm. um, for me at least. So mm. that's why I would say what we need is we need our our scholars. We need some of them to start being pastors and bringing this stuff to mm. God's people in a way where God's people are saying, this isn't fluff, but it's also going to do my soul good. It seemed to me your book was a lot like J.R. another Canadian, famous yeah, Canadian. Yeah, yeah, a friend of like, mine, yeah. A lot like J.R. Packer's Knowing God. Yeah. It's almost like you modeled that knowing Christ. Yeah. Um, and in the start of Packer's book, he has that famous analogy about traveling on a train mm-hmm. and seeing the stops, but mm-hmm. not getting off. Yeah. And there's a danger that we can um, know about God. Yeah. How do you guard about no- knowing about Christ yeah. compared to knowing Christ? Yeah. As a pastor, what would you say? Well, I would say that the number one way that we are to know Christ has to be through the public worship and the pastor's responsibility to preach not just about Christ but to preach Christ in a sense where you you are to know him and so you know the the book knowing Christ is an aid mm. to help pastors and lay mm. people and all those read and and maybe see things that they hadn't seen before or think about things but it's really a it's not the solution the solution has to take place in the pulpit and the worship so that people are being confronted with Christ on a weekly basis. Mm. And the scriptures are being preached in a way where, you know, a Muslim or a Jew sitting there can't go, oh yeah, I agree with that. There has to be a sense in which Mm. an atheist, a Muslim, a Jew, or or someone who's not a Christian is uncomfortable because the Christ is so explicit. So um, that's been, you know, my approach is is it has to start in the, the local church and the responsibility of pastors uh, like you and I, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to to cultivate that. And then these books are, yeah. are are really aids to that end. Sinclair Ferguson talks about there being two thieves either side yeah, of the, yeah. cro- the, the cross, legalism and, and antinomianism. You've written about this as well. Mm. Pastorally, how do you see um, the people of God um, being tempted towards either extreme today? Yeah, most, most congregations will have those two types and then you may have a more emphasis on the one than the other mm-hmm. and what I've noticed in people as well as congregations is you don't really um, you have to look at every congregation on a sort of cultural historical context maybe even where they've come from uh, but the root error is always the same as, as Ferguson also mentions mm-hmm. uh, I think you know the solution isn't that a congregation whose antinomia needs more law and that the anti, you know the, the yeah. legalists need more grace. The solution is just you know you need to find what is the actual truth, and preach that over a period of time and let that do its work. Because 
if you have a bunch of antinomian leaning people and you come in with law, you're not going to actually win them. You're, you're just mm. going to alienate their thinking patterns aren't mm. ready for that and vice versa. So if you come in and you preach Christ explicitly and preach the mm. text faithfully yeah. and, 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 and let the, the scripture do its work over time, mm. that's how you start to shift the people I've noticed back into uh, what is a more biblical picture of, of, of the Christian life. So, um, for me, that's been been my observation. The other thing I would say about legalism and antinomianism is, is that they're both very sensual uh, positions. The mm-hmm. legalist uh, loves his rules because he can mm-hmm. manage those rules, mm-hmm. and he gives a heightened sense of his superiority that he's able to keep these rules. And the antinomian has their own types of rules, and or lack thereof, and they can keep those very easily. Mm. And so they both actually are very similar types of human beings. They like to be in, what I say, control of situations. And antinomians are in control when they realize that they don't feel they have to do certain things. Mm. And legalists are in control when they realize they can do certain things and it's manageable on their own strength. And so it gives them a control. So those are the the kind of... Is it fair to say then it's a false worship. Yeah. Uh, well, and well, the <laughs> the tricky thing is, is that it's not always a case. At least, you know, this is my experience. I won't speak for others. It's not like we have in our church antinomians and legalists. We've got people along a mm. big spectrum, and there's mm. some with maybe a little bit of an antinomian slash legalistic streak, but they're not fully fledged, and they still are Christians. They're godly people. Mm. Um, there's some who have a lot more learning to do and need to be brought. Uh, the ones that concern me the most always aren't even so much the antinomians who have a bit of that streak. It's the the proud pharisaical legalists who really think they've got it all together. And that's, I think, the most dangerous type of false worship is are the people who um, look down on others. Now, the antinomians can actually look down on others if they mm. believe those others don't get grace. That's the mm. big phrase in America. Oh, they don't get grace. Mm. Um, but that's just legalism is you don't get my way of doing things. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, false worship is, is, a, is a possibility. But I'd also like to say people could still worship God, but there still can be some error mm. and they just need to be taught in the, in the way of... Yeah, something a little bit more controversial. You've been... <laughs> you've been um, very outspoken about the eternal subordination of the sun and um, how various people in Australia and um, North America um, have understood that, particularly in the context of the debates around complementarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, can you explain what your position is and, and why you think it's a better way forward? Well, I, I mean, I was, I'm a complementarian, and if you want to use that phrase, I believe you know that men should be in ordained office and, and women sh- are, are not or are pos- cannot possibly be ordained by God to be in uh, pastoral ministry. So, you know, I'm, it's not like I'm an egalitarian trying to mm. um, criticize these guys. So mm. I'm firmly there. At the same time, the, some of the complementarians who have, have, have advocated for the eternal subordination of the son or eternal functional subordination or eternal relations of authority and submission, mm. Um, I think what they've done in many cases is they've tried to rework uh, classical Orthodox Christian doctrine of God on his will uh, so that some have even postulated you know, multiple wills in God. Others have talked about authority as an attribute of the Father but not as a, an attribute of the Son. 
Uh, I, I'm outspoken because I think it, it really does harm to the Trinity in terms of relations between the three persons. I think it undermines the singular will of God. I think the Christology is also um, an area where I've been really concerned about how they've been relating um, Christ's will to the Father. And, and, and some have drifted into an old heresy called monothelitism, which is Christ has one will rather than two wills. Um, so if they make will a property of a person, which is not an orthodox way of speaking, then you look at Christ's singular person and say he has a will. Mm -hmm. You look at the Trinity and you see three persons, you see three wills on their thing. So they can start to mm -hmm. concoct a way in which there can be a type of subordination or submissiveness within the Trinity or submissiveness of Christ to the Father because Christ has one will and the Father has one will. But, you know, the, the Christian tradition has, has made clear that that's not an appropriate way of speaking for, you know, what do you think's at stake here practically? Like as a pastor, what what um, what dangers, what benefits um, are there in understanding the Trinity properly? Well, for me, the the main thing would be uh, there would be a, a couple of things actually. The first would be that Christ's human nature is is preserved and kept distinct from his divine nature, so that according to his human nature, his will really struggles and it really submits. And, and there really is a sense in which this was not easy. And it, it was painful and difficult for him. Now, if you want to talk about Christ having one will, that somehow a, a divine human concoction, it starts to raise questions about, you know, what was the nature of his obedience? When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, what is he really wrestling with the Lord, or is that just a phantom? So when he has two wills, and you, you see that he's wrestling as a singular person, though, according to his human nature and his human will, it puts a glory on his suffering, his humiliation, his, his obedience for us, because you see how truly painful and difficult this is. Um, moving to the Trinity, um, it's nice to see that if God has one will, which he does, because he has one essence, that anything that God does, uh, there's a perfect harmony and unity of purpose and operation among the three persons. There's not sort of a, you know, the Father wants to do this and the Son sort of says, well, okay, I'll submit to that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just not God. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's very human-like mm -hmm. um, language. And yes, in a husband-wife relationship, there is a sometimes a conflict and there has to be submission and there's wrestling and and stuff but when it comes to god we're, we're not talking about you know two ontologically different beings of a husband and wife we're talking about one god mm -hmm. so preserving the oneness of god to me would be a, a key point you know two cultures canada and australia are very similar constitutional monarchies um although you know you guys also speak french <laughs> um i'm just wondering you seem to be ahead of us in terms of your social progressiveness, um, uh, redefining marriage, transgenderism, things like that. What lessons do you think the Australian church can learn from what you have experienced over the last five to ten years? Well, I can speak. You know, Canada's kind of, our denomination has morphed into, we're part of the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America denomination, so it's, it's a weird dynamic for us as Canadians because 
I'm dealing with Canadian social issues, but my denomination is an American denomination. Mm. And then everything that goes on in America really drifts into Canada, mm. whereas not much of what we do drifts into America. So uh, in terms of what I've learned uh, is that uh, once, once you start to, to give up the scriptures in, in one area or a classical understanding of just how the church has operated um, everything else starts to sh quickly go with it. So you can't think um, that the battles are ever going to go away. So I've learned that, uh, especially with the internet now, there's a different debate happening every couple of months. Hmm. And some take uh, on a, a sort of bigger proportion than others in last years, others last months. Um, and for me, that's been a good lesson to not actually freak out a whole lot when a debate happens and a new issue arises and think, oh, well, this is the end of the church. It's, it's, it's maybe a time for me to say, well, you know what? Remember the emergent church? Well, nobody talks about that anymore. Mm. It came, it emerged, emerged <laughs> and, and it's dead. Like mm. there may be a few people holding on to that, but it's, it's just not an issue. And so I'm hoping that with some of the more heterodox issues of the day, yeah, they'll have their, their loud party, mm. but faithfulness in terms of what we can do as pastors week to week prayer for the wider church mm. good books being written mm. uh, ultimately god's word will triumph and and so the lessons are um, for those in australia who get worried about this stuff is to say we're, we have to remember we have a massive advantage god is on our side the scriptures are on our side history is on our side and some of these new th latest and greatest things uh, will die um, and I'm not saying this is some sort of triumphalist. I mean, I'm a, a millennialist, so mm. I, I don't have some glory age happening. Mm. But I do think that I can remain um, confident in that God's word will ultimately triumph. Mm. It's good. Mm. Now, Mark, it's not every day you, you meet someone who's studied the Puritans for 10, 10 years or more. Mm. Um, one question that, that I have around that is, how, how has that impacted your life? your day-to-day -day life. How, if you look back 10 years, mm. how, how have you changed as a result of mm. um, the works that the Puritans have, have written? I guess it's been 15 years now that oh, I do yeah. the math. Wow. <laughs> Terrible. I'm getting old. Uh, you know, the Puritans are, are, are men that first and foremost for me, they're very courageous men. They, you know, the Puritans that were it's not Spurgeon or Edwards, they're well beyond the Puritans. There are men in a distinct age, in a distinct religio-political context where they had to make decisions uh, that would cost them ultimately. And some got thrown out of the Church of England because they wanted to remain firm to their convictions. Other left England and, and, and you know, Scot Scotland and other places uh, to sort of give up great prestigious positions at times. So, you know, when I'm reading them, I'm not just reading them as divorced theologians from a context. You're reading these men as men who knew what it was to pastor during the time of, of plagues, sometimes fires, persecution, uh, wars. Uh, and so there's an edge to their writing where you see these are, these are men who know what it is to be Christians in difficult circumstances. So you read them and the learning is incredible, but there's the other side where you're dealing with pastors who, who knew what it was to suffer you know, in a very tangible way that we probably don't quite 
yet mm -hmm. know in Australia, Canada, America. Mm -hmm. And I think it shows in their writing compared to ours. And there's not much we can do about it. You know, we mm -hmm. try and we do our best, but um, they, they, th their lives were on the line when they were writing books. Yeah. <laughs> Mine mm -hmm. isn't. You know, I'm, I'm in a comfortable office with, with YouTube in the background listening to music. Uh, they weren't. Uh, and I think that shows in just the quality of what they were able to produce compared to ours. Mm. Mm. And so are there, are there ways in which your life is, is different now? Yeah. As, as a result? I, I think I'm, I'm grateful for, for what they've been able to teach me about theology in a way that has relevance to my daily living. So the sort of little OBS stands for observation and they'll have at the end of a, a discourse on some doctrine observation and then a paragraph observation observation or doctrine or and then doctrine for life as as uh, Joel Beakey and I wrote the book Purit a Puritan mm -hmm. theology doctrine for life is like how does this relate to my daily living and there's not a day that goes by that I don't remember some aspect of Christ the Trinity that hasn't been um, given to me as a meditation um, by the Puritans. And, you know, I'll be forever grateful. I can't wait to, to meet uh, them in heaven and, and thank mm -hmm. them because uh, there's no other era in which I've been as richly blessed as, as that one. Just w one aspect I'm intrigued to hear your comments on is pneumatology, mm -hmm. the, the work of the spirit. Um, yeah, I'm just, what are you... Uh, I was intrigued at having read Knowing Christ, um, the role of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think the the Puritans were, they wrote massive tomes on, I mean, uh, John Owen and Thomas Goodwin, for example, have in, in their volumes uh, one devoted to the work of the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. each. And we're not talking like a minor treatise. We're talking mm. about a massive work on just the work of the Spirit and Stephen Charnock on regeneration and, and things like that. So one of the things that struck me about John Owen, for example, when he writes on Christ is that you kind of learn a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit because the mm. work of the Holy Spirit on Christ was a, a very unique contribution of Owen's to Christology. But then as you learn more about Christ, you learn more about the Spirit mm. so that learning about one necessarily means you have to learn about the other mm. and when it comes to the work of the holy spirit on christ you start to see how what is the chief work of the spirit the mm. chief work of the spirit is to implant into us christ's moral character he brings us to life in order to make us like christ mm. and that's because he was christ's inseparable companion during his ministry so I think what's helped me as a Presbyterian pastor is to say, you know, if your doctrine of the Holy Spirit doesn't glorify Christ and doesn't lead to Christ, doesn't speak of Christ, it's an impoverished doctrine of the, of mm. the Spirit. Uh, and same with my Christology. If my Christology doesn't give me a lively, vigorous understanding of the work of the Spirit in my life and corporately, mm. then I haven't understood Christology very well because Christ mm. is actually now the giver of the Spirit to all of his people in a way where he wants his people to be suitable bride for himself. So mm. I think the Puritans and, and my own research and stuff has been really connecting the two loci uh, together. Mm. Mm. Unfortunately, 
That's all we have time for. Yeah. But Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank it's you. It's been fascinating. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks thank for you. joining us. Yeah, pleasure. Anytime.